But I think we're glossing over the takeaway, which is that 5G is going to cure cancer. Welcome to episode 361 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Yes, it's true. The 5G hype has now reached the same level as the old-timey snake oil salesman, and Christopher has something to say about it. This week, he and our communications specialist, Jess Del Fiaco, tackle a questionable ad from Verizon, along with several other timely topics. They discuss a recent report from MLAB that compares real-world internet access speeds and self-reported results from ISPs. Jess and Christopher also discuss the recent news about Ammon, Idaho, where their software-defined open access fiber network is creating a competitive environment where internet access rates are incredibly affordable. Along with Ammon, they discuss the open access model and some of the pros and cons. Lastly, we hear a discussion about the possible cap on the Universal Service Fund. Christopher talks about the fund, what it does, and explains what might happen if this idea is adopted. Now here's Jess and Christopher. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and we're back with another of uh, perhaps series that we'll call perhaps either Chris Unleashed or Chris Unhinged, <laughs> depending on uh, your point of view. But uh, we have Just Del Fiaco back in the studio slash office um, to talk about a couple of topics that are a little bit hot in the news. Yeah, at least from our perspective. I mean, you know. National media might not be paying extremely close attention, especially to this first one. But uh, right, we'll it's not—it's not like an incredible breaking news story about who has just surged one or two percentage points up um, among their twenty-three competitors for an election that won't be held until sometime in another person's lifetime. For what it seems <laughs> like right now. Uh, but anyways, happy to be back. It has been a while. People usually say that, like, "Oh, it's been a while." I'm so glad I haven't seen you in that long. <laughs> Um, I guess we can kick things off with uh, this uh, fun commercial that I've brought you. Yeah, that's actually why I'm a little bit giddy, because this commercial is amazeballs. <laughs> As I, I'm talking... <laughs> I'm talking may, the, maybe not what I would call it, but... That's uh, what your generation would call it. I'm pretty sure I'm 40 and I understand these things. <laughs> uh, sure. Whatever makes you feel good. So we're, we're about to react to a 60-second advertisement from Verizon for a, a product that I think most of our listeners will be somewhat familiar with, at least intellectually. Um, and it, it came to me out of the blue because it's a show by Mike Pesca, who does a daily show for Slate, a podcast that is pretty eclectic. It's very interesting. I think he's a fascinating, interesting mind. He's like a former Jeopardy contestant. The guy is quite sharp. He's had Susan Crawford on, so we know that he's has pretty good choice in who he's interviewing. Um, and and there was just this ad that he read, and as I was listening to it, I don't remember if I almost fell off my bike or dropped the dish <laughs> when I was doing the dishwasher, but I was just like, what is going on? So I want people to hear this, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it. Doctors are doing the best they can to fight cancer, the most challenging disease humankind has ever faced, but They're often limited by 2D images to understand a patient's 3D anatomy. What if this could be different? Dr. Christopher Morley and Dr. Osama Chowdhury created Metaviz, a technology that can take two-dimensional patient imaging, whether an MRI or CAT scan, and convert it into three-dimensional holographic renderings. This will fundamentally change how doctors visualize cancer. Dr. Morley and Chowdhury thought this technology might just not be possible because computing power just wasn't there. But Verizon 5G Ultra Wideband will give them the ability to do this. 
Verizon 5G Ultra Wideband will help give doctors the ability to fight cancer like never before. All right, Jess, I don't even know where to start. I want to start eight different places. And like, I mean, it's the thing is that it's almost beyond parody. You know? Right, right. Um, and, and like, this is going to be an ad on in the future on Idiocracy 2, the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've spent some time thinking it over. And I mean, we've tried to parody it. And it's it's really too bad that the memes that we've made about it don't translate well into podcast format because we've would, had some fun. It would be like trying to make a movie parody of Scary Movie, which is itself a parody of scary movies. <laughs> but I think we're glossing over the takeaway, which is that 5G is going to cure cancer. 5G will cure cancer. All those people who worry that it might cause cancer do not have to worry. And we don't have to care if it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because as Lisa said, um, famous editor, um, you know, we'll, we imagine that we'll soon see a future of people clustering under 5G nodes you know, to smoke their cigarettes, knowing that they can do it safely there. I'm really looking forward to the, the next in this series of ads where 5G, you know, tackles world hunger. Um, (laughs) You know, maybe uh, it solves climate change for us. I think 5G is going to help me pick out my clothes in the morning. And I'm looking forward to that because it's one of the hardest decisions I have to make, as you can tell, (laughs) with the rotation of the six outfits that I wear into the office. We could just keep making fun of this. But I want to bring it back a little bit because there's literally been, I think it's more than five years, businesses that exist in places like strip malls that have fiber optics there with radiologists who interpret 3D images on fiber optics. And you know what? They don't do it on AT&T and Verizon. <laughs> like, there's, this, there's this insanity, this idea that like, oh, wow, like soon we'll be able to transmit all this stuff on 5G as though we can't do it right now because like, okay, let's just say that the doctors are using 5G. So they're using a device, maybe a tablet, um, maybe some holographic display. And, and there's 5G for 100 meters, 300 feet, 200 feet. And then it's fiber the whole rest of the way. I don't know, 10,000 miles around the world, 5,000 miles, 2,000 miles across the U.S. Who knows? Like, the idea that we're waiting for 5G is just so ridiculous. I mean, and let's just be very clear about this future that Verizon, Verizon expects, which is that they're envisioning a future in which I'm what on the operating table, perhaps, and I'm expecting Verizon and AT&T to keep their network up long enough for the networks to operate on me. I... This is this is ridiculous. But this is for Verizon 5G ultra wideband, Chris. Oh, so you're right. I forgot. Yeah, it's like um, you know, if, if for all the Michelob drinkers out there, you know the difference <laughs> between a regular and ultra. This is next level. <laughs> That's right. This is ultra wideband from FiOS, and as Katie reminds us, <laughs> it's almost like Verizon forgot about that little thing called FiOS that they built um, in many places, some of which they sold to Frontier, and Frontier's in the purse process of probably selling it for scrap. I don't know what Frontier's doing. But Verizon has a ton of fiber connecting places like hospitals. And the idea that they're like, let's just throw all that crap away because we can use this unreliable network of 5G where as long as there's no trees between you and your destiny and your, you know, your, your node, it's going to be great. I'm uh, you know, it's it, this is and the, another thing Katie pointed out was the, the perplexiness of this, of that it's about computing power. 
And 5G is about the ability to move information quickly in high volumes and to a large number of devices, supposedly. Those are the advantages over the existing wireless network. And so this is just, it's a classic model of we don't know what we're talking about, but we're pretty sure you know less about what we're talking about. <laughs> we're going to make it sound real good. Yeah. Um, the um, Lisa was suggesting that we may see a lot of college pre-med folks. Um, um, <laughs> Jumping ship. <laughs> Yeah, they're going to they're going to leave pre-med and go to Verizon exactly. But the final bit of thing I would pull this back to a little bit of reality. I, you know, I actually don't know if anyone has credible estimates right now. I've heard a lot of people talking about 5G and how much we're going to see deployed because it's quite costly. Um, and I just saw an estimate, I believe it was 250 million dollars to bring 5G to all of San Jose alone. That's an, an incredible amount of money considering that that's not to connect every home because we already know that 5G with the nature of the wireless cannot connect every home because if there could be trees mm -hmm. in, in the middle of it or the building house materials or any number of other factors that makes wireless not suited for this. And then estimates for nationwide significant 5G coverage are like $250 billion. Wall Street is not looking. To, it's not like they're like, you know, we got a quarter of a trillion dollars and we don't know where to put it. Maybe. <laughs> what could we possibly do? Is there something that has ultra in the title? Because <laughs> that's pretty promising. I think there will be less um, yucks in the, the rest of the, the topics that you're going to blindside me with that I've been no way prepared for, mm -hmm. Jessica. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> so what else are we talking about? Well, our next topic, you know, it's, it's brand new news for you, I'm sure, Chris, that uh, it's possible FCC maps might not be totally accurate. Yes, um, I'm, I'm very disappointed. Um, I, I did not see this coming. <laughs> I understand that there's gambling in Las Vegas as well. <laughs> It's been a hard morning for me. Um, um, but some good news is that uh, we worked with MLab to kind of investigate what's happening in Pennsylvania, a new report where we produce some maps. That's right. So Sasha Meinrath, um, who's a professor at Penn State University now, is someone that I have a, a history of collaborating with. He uh, had helped, uh, he had actually created the Open Technology Initiative and then the Open Technology Institute at New America um, and helped, uh, you know, it was under that auspices that MLabs was created. Uh, he asked us to work with them uh, on a project to really provide good policy advice and a good sense of what broadband was like in Pennsylvania. And so we work with them on that. And there's some some key takeaways. I mean, our um, Sasha's goal in this, which I strongly supported, was to create a template that other states could use. Mm -hmm. And we really hope that that happens. So um MLab had 11 million speed tests over 2018. They found that the median speeds in most areas were below broadband, and there were zero counties where at least half of the populace had speed tests reflecting broadband. Yeah, and this is pretty far off from the FCC's maps, which show right around 100% broadband They did at different times, and, and that's where I want to make sure because um, there were times in which it said 100%. I'm not sure if that's the current map because the FCC – then realized that they had made a significant error in including a provider that just said, hey, everybody, <laughs> you know, we're doing fiber to everyone and wireless to everyone that can do a gigabit. Wonderful news. Um, the FCC originally included those numbers in its estimates, um, has since revised them. Um, but the FCC's numbers are indeed far rosier. Now, I want to I want to point something out, Jess, and I um, and I think that's 
um, important, which is that the MLAB data itself is also not perfect, uh, which is to say that we have two bounds, basically. We have um, the self-reported data, which is cherry-picked and almost certainly dramatically overstates access from the companies that are reporting it to the FCC. Now, MLABs relies on people who are taking speed tests in their homes and uh, or from their mobile devices or whatever. And we can track it back and know which ISP and generally know their geographic area pretty closely to where they are. But we don't know if they are hardwired into the access point. We don't know if there's a lot of congestion on the line at that moment. And so if it was MLabs alone, I might be a little bit concerned about the accuracy of it. But the MLab data lines up very strongly with data that we've seen from Microsoft. And from there's another major company that has done this. Um, aside from Netflix, which is what I was going to come to, Netflix, I don't know if they've published it um, officially, but they also have this kind of data and they know who gets what kind of connectivity from their hits against their website as well as their streaming. So what we see consistently is that is that the MLab data is pretty close to what multiple independent tests are using in terms of how people actually use the internet and what their real connection is like, regardless of how it's advertised. Uh, so what I thought, well, one of the most interesting things from this report was that the discrepancy between those FCC numbers and MLAB's findings was um, growing in rural areas um, much faster than urban areas. Right. I mean, back back when you were um, not yet uh, in this amazing job that you have at ILSR. <laughs> A whopping 10 months ago. <laughs> we, um, you know, I would say actually back in like 2012 and earlier, the cable companies were pretty famous for advertising speeds that most people did not achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially when you got home from school or after work, the three o'clock to five o'clock and then the primetime hours, people would not get anywhere close to the advertised speeds. Doxis 3.0 and now Doxis 3.1, which are the technical names for the way that they use the cable lines to get us broadband access over our cable modems, that really solved that problem, the way they engineered it. And so I would say that in urban areas and on cable networks, there's going to be some people who are in neighborhoods that have problems. Uh, mm -hmm. But for the most part, we see cable networks largely delivering what they promise. Um, I think it's very true of uh, Comcast. I think it may be less true of a Mediacom. But when I look at the speed test data, uh, it suggests to me that the cable companies in general are have figured this out. They've, they've, they can deliver what they're promising. And in areas that are reliant on DSL, which is more rural areas, um, there's actually going backwards. They're going backwards because what happens is is that you have a maximum throughput to your house, really, based on the copper line to your house and the condition of it and a number of other factors. But it used to be that that was what slowed you down. You couldn't do better than that. But now you have congestion in a different part of the network in many cases, we think. And so you have CenturyLink and Frontier, Windstream, AT&T. These companies aren't making the needed investments. And so people in rural areas are going from slow to slower rather than slow to a little bit better. And I think that's a major cause of concern. It's not surprising for those of us who have been watching it. But I don't know that many policymakers are really aware of that right now. 
So you made some policy recommendations in this report. You want to talk about some of those? What can Pennsylvania do differently? Well, I mean, Pennsylvania is one of those states that limits local authority to build networks. So Mm -hmm. what do you think uh, we (laughs) we recommended to them? Uh, Step one, support local broadband solutions, maybe? You could even say it more broadly, which is to say, right now, Pennsylvania says certain entities that are very interested in some cases in investing in broadband may not do so. So let's say we want more investment. Let's make Let's make the restrictions that stop some investment go away. That's one. Um, one of the things that we did that I'm proud of is try to identify local cooperatives and private companies that are investing well. Now, I don't remember. I think Pennsylvania may not have a single telephone cooperative, but I'm suddenly doubting myself on that. They have one electric cooperative, which is moving forward aggressively, um, and and they actually have won some of that money from the CAF2 auction, the Connect America Fund auction recently last year. So those are you know the kind of entities we normally support. But there's also some local telephone companies that have invested in fiber to the home, and we wanted to highlight them. We wanted to highlight that there are companies who have been really harmed by the pole attachment process in Pennsylvania, where companies, as in the case with PPL in an area... When I grew up, PP and L at that time, as they were called... Um, People Power and Light, I believe, they were the electric company. And so I'm very familiar with them. And um, remember my grandparents ranting about them for no good reason. (laughs) But they have been really difficult to work with for local providers like Maw, which is trying to work in a partnership with the city of Lancaster. So we wanted to make sure the state was aware of that and that there were other cases in which investor-owned electric companies are really getting in the way of more investment. Um, so we made that recommendation. We wanted to make sure they were aware that Pennsylvania is about to get more money than any other state. You're nodding your head. Uh, you know, the Tri-County Rural Electric Cooperative is getting some money from CAF2, I believe, um, but a majority of that funding is going to Viasat. Um, who we have some criticisms of, um, possibly many criticisms, because what they're (laughs) providing isn't actually broadband, and them getting that funding means that uh, these problems aren't going to be solved. Exactly. And so all those areas that Viasat's getting money for uh, also mean that that Tri-County cannot get money from the Reconnect Fund from the United States Department of Agriculture, which is supposed to encourage rural broadband. I mean, you have a situation in north-central Pennsylvania in which you have some areas that are getting fiber to the home, the best network you can possibly get. And then just next to them, are people who are getting subsidized satellite service, which is not broadband, which will result in declining economic opportunities, and which the presence of them getting that subsidy means the Reconnect Fund will not fund in those areas. So that's uh, a major cause of concern. So I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this, this Pennsylvania report. I'm hoping that we'll see others iterate on it. Uh, I certainly hope that we're able to improve on it over time. But I think there's some really important things that, that we did in there that will help move the conversation forward. Definitely. Um, and I think we're ready to uh, switch gears to a more positive story. Um, out of Ammon, Idaho. Uh, Most of our listeners are already going to be familiar with Ammon, uh, where they're working on an open access model um, in their city. Um, And they've got some good news. And the good news is that they've got free internet now, internet access now. Right. Um, Depending on how you want to break down the cost, to be clear. Free is in quotations, and we can get into that, I think. I'm sure that, you know, for the people who haven't read my back and forth with Dane Jasper on Twitter, it's only because they haven't gotten to it yet as they religiously (laughs) follow my Twitter feed on this subject of what exactly it costs, (laughs) which I I really appreciate people like Dane who um, get involved in this because, you know, he's um, Dane Jasper runs Sonic, a great company in California, and he's a sharp mind. And 
And even though he and I disagreed on a couple of points, those sorts of conversations are what makes Twitter valuable, I think. Um, so at any rate, um, Ammon allows multiple operators on its network. It added a new operator and it changed the competitive dynamic. And what happened was they dramatically lowered the price. And so I think um, Gigabit went down at that time to $10 a month or so. Do you remember right the, the first drop? Yeah, so they got that new provider and, uh, you know, competition changed and prices dropped a bit. So gig access was around $15, but then it dropped again um, down to around 10 I believe. There's a couple of points here that I think are interesting. I, first of all, maybe just noting that this is not the total cost to the homeowner. And the way Ammon's network works, uh, which we've described in multiple podcasts and we have a great video about, uh, is that there's a, a set of fees. And so there's a construction fee, which could be a one-time cost to the home, which might be on the order of $3,000 or so. And you could pay for that at one time if you wanted to, or you could amortize it over 20 years with an assessment on your home that works out to, on the order of $16, $17 per month for 20 years. So that's one fee and that fee will go away if you pay it off and you never have to pay it again. A second fee, which is assessed by the city to maintain the fiber and keeps it going is $16.50 a month. That does not go away. And so if you pay that, you don't really have access to the internet, You don't, but you may have like some other city type services available and more over time. But the, the key is then that you can choose service providers over a portal on your home computer. And that allows you to switch among providers. And this competition is one in which we see the providers jockeying to provide lower prices. And as a result of a new provider entering, we saw a gigabit decline by um, roughly 30% from 15 to $10. And then um, there was another sort of brief skirmish and, and price adjustment in which one of the original providers on the network, Fibercom, decided to start offering a 15 megabit symmetrical connection for free, no charge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, an interesting dynamic is, is as we understand it, uh, is that um, that may not have actually led to them having a lot more customers. Like at the time that it happened, I believe 48 hours later, um, no one had signed up, right? Yeah, for that the, was for the free version. Yeah, exactly. But people had maybe switched over to that because they had a sense that that was the kind of company they wanted to support. That was, you know, kind of thinking in that direction. Uh, Fibercom is a local wireless ISP that operates on the network, and um, I found them to be pretty innovative. But uh, it was it's it's kind of fascinating to see what happens now. I do want to say that I am a little bit concerned. I don't think this is all good news. It is good news for those of us who are trying to figure out how to lower the price. To be clear, if you got the free service from Fibercom, then you would be paying $16.50 a month to have a fiber um, that was maintained in case of problems. Um, and you may or may not be paying for the cost of the connection if you'd paid it off already. So um, free in this case means $16.50 a month, which is still pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> Less than what I pay. Right. And... Um, but the thing is, is that a, a concern among some, uh, an honest concern, there's a lot of fake concerns from people who are just trying to preserve the status quo, but a real concern is that in an open access model with so few barriers to entry, the cost would decline so much that um, it would be hard to make money. And at that point, the market becomes unstable, companies start to um, go bankrupt, and you have acquisitions. And it's just not the kind of thing people want because people don't want their email provider or their internet access company to suddenly disappear. 
overnight. So, um, you know, there's reasons to, to just keep watching this experiment happening with a lot of hope. Uh, but I wanted to, to raise that, that over time, what we're hoping for is market stability and that there are services these companies offer that allow them to um, make a margin and allow for new companies to come in and, and sort of innovate and that sort of a thing. But not just that we want to think that low prices are the, the sole objective of these kinds of investments, because that can be counterproductive. Um, so on last week's podcast, we talked about um, the uh, sci-fi networks moving into Fullerton, California. What what sets that network um, apart from Ammon? Um, we can talk a little bit about the differences. The first thing is actually I didn't add, get into the technology in that interview. And so I don't think sci-fi will enable people to switch uh, with just a click of a button in 30 seconds, um, which is something that um, sci-fi may add over time. But their their main goal is bringing choice in, you know. But what I think what I think I've, I see out of this news out of Ammon, this news of sci-fi being one of certainly the largest United States based privately funded open access network is that there's still a lot of innovation to do. I, I think this is a model that's promising for communities to look into. I'm excited at, at like sci-fi giving an opportunity to more ISPs like Ting, like Gigabit Now, uh, and others who are going to be trying to use this model and see if it works. And over time, you know, we have, I would say, you know, between 100 and 250,000 people that could have access to open access fiber in Washington. There's 25,000 or so in Utah, maybe, you know, there's going to be a thousand in Ammon by the end of the year with rapid growth there. Fullerton, we're looking at 150,000. But when we have 2 million, 5 million people with open access choices, you know, which will take us a few years to get there. And I, and, and I should know, we also know Lit, Lit Communities with Brian Snyder is, um, you know, is working with uh, Medina, Ohio. And so there's a lot of opportunities to get a sense of what's happening here. And I think we're going to see a lot of progress on it. Um, and this idea of, of giving uh, a single network and having multiple providers competing on it. I'm, I'm excited for it. I think there's been some challenges. There's been some setbacks. We have better expectations. And I don't want to set a date on it because I am terrible at deadlines. Jess is laughing at me. <laughs> but we are working on a report to try to summarize everything that's happened in open access in the United States. You have uh, one last one before I'm totally unhinged or mm-hmm. unleashed? Yes, one last last topic for this, uh, you know, a little bit of a meandering conversation that we've had here. You have a take on the... Uh, <laughs> Do I ever? I don't even know you're going to ask me. <laughs> uh, on the potential cap for the Universal Service, Universal Service Fund that, um, you know, other people haven't brought up yet. So could you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? Right. So it's worth stepping back for a second because I still, I may even make a mistake here and one of our astute listeners may correct me and then I'll, next week I'll have to offer an embarrassing correction. But um, we're talking about uh, universal service funds is uh, is basically four services that are fund with a, a certain kind of attacks on certain kinds of telecommunications services. And that money goes to uh, offer service in places in which the market would underinvest otherwise. Um, and so there's like a healthcare fund, there's a high cost fund, which is the one we pay the most attention to that brings service out to low income folks. There's the lifeline fund. And there's the one that I always forget, which is embarrassing because I'm supposed to know this sort of stuff cold E-rate. How could I forget E-rate? <laughs> it's the one I probably knew the most about earliest. <laughs> it's one of the, the easier ones to grasp, which connects to schools and libraries. And so that money, um, it comes from a pot that uh, is not from the general treasury, but from this tax. 
And so certain kinds of providers have to collect it and other providers don't. And that creates a lot of tension. Um, some of the municipals have to pay into that fund. And I think so from that perspective, I'm very sympathetic to the provider feeling, which is that, you know, this tax, which is changed based on the amount that's used in the fund um, is, uh, you know, that, that it, the question is, is it Originally, these programs were funded with money um, that came from long-distance charges. And as the business models have changed, there's um, just a lot of the companies involved would say unfairness, I think, as to how we raise this money. Now, the nice thing is, is that Congress doesn't have to appropriate it, so we don't have to worry that when some people inaccurately call Lifeline the Obama phone program, which I don't think Ronald Reagan would be very appreciative of since he started that program to make sure that everyone could have a phone, um, that Congress couldn't just slash that funding. It's sort of its its own funding mechanism. But the problem is, is that it's, it's multiple billions of dollars um, per year, and there's a sense that it should be changed significantly. And I think we're about to see the the rate go up still further to, um, I believe, more than 20% is the expectation of, on these services. And so there's concern. And there's some people who are saying that we need a cap. And their proposal is right now, we have one cap for the four programs. And mm-hmm. so, you know, maybe let's just say it's $5 billion. And then, you know, if Lifeline runs out of money, too bad. Or if E-Rate runs out of money, too bad. The problem is then is that then we have Lifeline competing against E-Rate. And so you have people who are getting $10 a month service to have phone service, which is essential. Talk to their doctors. Many of us who don't use phones forget how important it is, especially if you don't have a home internet connection. I realize that this may seem exceedingly rambly, but to some extent, <laughs> it's hard to avoid there. that in USF discussions. <laughs> um, the point is, is that I think I have a lot of sympathy for the idea that like, A, this money could be spent better. B, this is not an entirely appropriate way to raise the money for important programs. But my belief is, is that, and I believe Shelby has just made this point, the Schools, Hospitals, and Libraries Broadband Coalition, which we're a member of, that we don't even know um, how much money Lifeline is going to use because a lot of people who are eligible don't have access to it, don't know about it. And so we're going to cap it and then turn people away who are in need. That seems wrong. I mean, if we're going to have a cap, we should have a sense of of what the expectations are rather than just saying we're going to have a cap and too bad for people who don't fit under it. And then um, I think Commissioner FCC Commissioner Rosenworcel memorably said that we don't have a Hunger Games between these four programs in which, you know, you don't want people on E-rate to be dissing uh, the Lifeline program or the or the rural hospitals or healthcare program. If we're going to have caps, it strikes me that it should be on a per program basis mm-hmm. rather than just across the four and have them fight it out. So I think this is an important issue. I think it's really important that people understand you know, how this money gets spent, because then maybe there'll be some pressure to improve upon the program, rather than just having this, to most people, obscure regulatory agency deciding this and having a fee show up on their bills, then when they get their cell phones or their their home telephone service bills. So there's better ways to do it. But it's an important issue to keep an eye on. Because, um, you know, as we see these services change, and the business models change, there's a status quo bias that we just end up with, you know, a program that may not be funded in a way that still makes sense today and some significant problems we have to work on. So in the end, do you think it's worth talking about, you know, debating whether or not there should be a cap or what kind of cap there should be? Um, and instead, maybe we should focus our energies on thinking about how these programs are funded and what we should change about that? 
that is a hard it's a hard question that I do not know how to answer. And so I'm probably gonna end up weaseling out of it in the next <laughs> thirty to ninety seconds. If you did have an easy answer that might solve a lot of problems well, for a lot of people. Washington is so broken. Like it's just it's so broken. I mean, it's just frustrating because for instance, like Lifeline, which is also increasingly used for broadband service, is ten dollars a month. And um, that made sense when when you could have telephone service at ten dollars a month. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of broadband options that are worth anything that you can get for that. The broadband market is so broken that to then provide a subsidy that's going to make a difference in people's lives, it's hard to figure out how to do that. So that's why, from our perspective, I would say I don't know what the federal solution is, and we spend our time trying to figure out how to work with motivated localities, communities, and counties, cities that can make a difference. And they can do things like they did in San Francisco in the partnership with Monkey Brains in which they can lower the cost. And then maybe a federal program could help people with it if there's still a cost that has to be left over, or maybe that's not even necessary. And so I don't know what the answer is, but it's important that people hear both sides. One, that I think a cap overall is damaging. Two, that these programs, the way they're funded is not appropriate in 2019 anymore, I don't think. And that three, there's no hope. <laughs> <laughs> you know, according to uh, FCC Commissioner O'Reilly, uh, one of our favorite people up there. Oh, he loves us too. <laughs> uh, you know, the biggest concern is overbuilding and avoiding wasting money on that. So mm-hmm. <laughs> as long yes. as we can keep that out of the equation, we'll be all good, right? It's, it's remarkable how after 100 years of the U.S. government um, basically believing monopoly, and not without good reason, believing that monopoly was the solution, that you should just suddenly say, okay, no more monopoly, and we're not going to fund any competitive network, even though companies like AT&T have had 100 years of, of, of unfair advantages over their competitors in the market. And so it would be crazy to give a dollar to a company that wants to connect some customers that AT&T has left behind if AT&T has any plausible connection to them. I... This whole discussion of overbuilding is um, it's uh, it's frustrating because it, it gives you a sense of how lobbyists rule D.C. The United States federal policy is competition, and it's this sense of yes, well, competition just means the government doesn't do anything, and AT and T rules. But in theory, just you and I could start a company that would dethrone AT and T because there's no government regulations to stop us. That's not how markets work, <laughs> so. Overbuilding is a hot button for me. Um, Commissioner O'Reilly, I think, um, is a, does a disservice to um, what even his own goals are in talking about overbuilding in that way because I truly believe that he wants to see a competitive market, but I don't think he has a sense of how to get there at all. I'm sorry I set you off on our, our last question what here else? while we're trying to wrap up. Have you, there's almost nothing you could ask me that wouldn't set me off. I mean, <laughs> you could note that the Pennsylvania report both capitalizes and does not capitalize the word internet. And I almost pulled my hair out this morning <laughs> when I noticed that. No, I'm, I'm sure that I have other hot button issues. Let's talk about um, my love for Vin Diesel. <laughs> I don't want to get into that conversation at all. I'm sure it's lengthy. <laughs> Well, thank you, everyone. Um, you know, we have a, an email called podcasts at muninetworks.org in which you can tell me you want to hear less from me and more from guests, or you want to hear Jess um, be able to get a few more words in because I talk too much, which <laughs> is something I'm trying to work on. I just need to be a push your host, that's all. Yeah, I think we need to get you. I actually have tomatoes in the fridge. You should is just, there's things I could throw at yeah, you? Yeah, that would be ideal. It would distract me enough for you to get a word in. 
Okay, well, thanks. This has been a good talk. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. That was our communication specialist, Jess Delfiaco, with Christopher, discussing some of the issues in the news, including 5G hype, Ammon, Idaho, the MLAB report, and a proposed cap on the Universal Service Fund. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed to Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 361 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>